I'm glad that you're here to worship the Lord with us today. I want to tell you a story. You know, some of the things that people endure, some of the things that people suffer, the stories of what people go through sometimes are almost hard to imagine. Uh, there was a young lady, I could tell you her name, you don't know her, but you probably have heard of her, some of you have at least, but I'm not going to mention her name. But she grew up in a, in a home where it was really, really bad. It was a very rough environment for her to grow up in. And uh, eventually she got out of that environment. Eventually she went to live with somebody else. And, and as a young girl, she was now hoping that things would improve. You know, like every little teenage girl, she had dreams that things would be better. And she had dreams of the kind of life that she wanted. And, and when she went to this other home to live with these folks, uh, it started out okay, but eventually things took a very bad turn. And she actually began, that dream that she had began to turn into a nightmare. She experienced abuse while she was there. Physical abuse, verbal abuse. And this was at the hands of people who claimed to know God. Uh, they abused her to such a degree that eventually she left. She just got out of the home. She had to get away from that house. And, and so she, she ran and she left. And, and she found herself in the middle of nowhere with, with really nothing and no money. No hope of anything improving. Nobody who really knew where she was. And nobody really cared what was happening in her life. She found herself alone with no money. And oh, by the way, she was pregnant. What do you say to somebody like that? How do you try to help somebody in that situation? What words of hope could you give someone like that? I'm in a series called His Presence. We started this series last Sunday. His presence, we said last week, is what often makes the difference. His presence sometimes makes the difference between defeat and victory. His presence has made the difference between despair and hope. It is the presence of God that makes the difference between fear and courage. And sometimes it is the presence of God that makes the difference between giving up and going on. The thing that changes our outlook, and many times our outcome, is His presence. So last week we looked at, the, at this thought that His presence is what distinguishes us from all the people on the planet. It's the presence of God in our lives that makes us different from everybody else on the planet. That doesn't make us better, but it is the reality that the only thing that makes us different is not who we are, but it's the God who lives in us. But today I want to ask you this question. Have you ever felt rejected? Have you ever felt unloved? Have you ever felt unwanted and maybe even invisible? Have you ever felt like maybe some, nobody cares? And nobody really knows what's going on in your life and nobody really seems to care about what's going on in your life? If so, you can relate to Hagar's story. She's the lady I told you about as I began this message. And there's actually a backstory to the main story. And so I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. I'll begin by telling you the backstory to the main story. Hagar was an Egyptian slave girl. She grew up in Egypt. She made her way out of Egypt eventually, and she was living with this family. The, the man's name was Abram. The wife's name was Sarai. She was living in their home and she was their servant. 
Now, Sarai, the, Abram's wife, had not been able to get pregnant. Uh, though God had promised them a son, God had promised them a family, that was ten years ago. Ten years had passed, and God had not fulfilled His promise. Ten years had passed, and Sarai was still waiting on a son. And in this day, if you were not able to get pregnant, you had no other option except if you had a slave or a servant, it was permitted in that time and in that culture to give your, your slave or your servant to your husband and to obtain a child through that means. They didn't have in vitro fertilization and all the other technologies that we had. So if you wanted a son, if you wanted somebody to carry on the family line, then it was a common practice, if you couldn't get pregnant, to give your slave to your husband and perhaps build a family through her. And so we pick up the story in chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. As I said, this was not uncommon in the ancient culture for a barren woman to give her slave her servant to her husband in order to conceive a male child. And after that baby was born, then the wife would adopt that child and, and he would become her legal heir. And it's interesting to me what Sarai said, and I have it underlined in my study Bible, perhaps you want to mark it in yours. She said, perhaps I can. God has not given me a child. Perhaps I can build a family. God has not done what He said He would do. Perhaps I can solve this problem. But things did not go so well. Verse 4 and 5, read carefully. Verse 4 and 5. He, Abram, slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she, Hagar, began to despise her mistress. Apparently, Hagar didn't really like this idea. And when she got pregnant, she wasn't ready to be a mom. When she got pregnant, she didn't want to have a child. And once she realized she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarai. And then look what happened. Verse 5, Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. There's not a man in this place that does not understand what's happening. Right? Come on, can I get a witness? You did exactly what she said to do, and you still did it wrong. It's still your fault, right? Amen. Preach it, brother. I better go on. <laughs> Don't miss the obvious lesson here. Folks, whenever we run ahead of God, we usually get in trouble. You see, the flesh loves to help God out. Sarai said, God hasn't done what He said He would do. I've been waiting ten years. God hasn't done what He said He would do. 
Perhaps I can do this. And the flesh loves to help God out. And just the way, it's just the way we sometimes work. You know, if God's not doing what we want, when we want, how we want, then we decide we can help God. But helping God is simply getting in God's way. Helping God, though, in our mind is a lot easier than trusting and waiting. And so we try to help God out. But you can't do that. You can't mix faith and flesh. You either trust God or you trust yourself. So they're in the middle of a, of a big problem in their family. Because Sarai has tried to take the place of God. And instead of waiting on God, she, she kind of does her own thing. It takes matters into her own hands. And now everything is blown up in her face. And the family is in turmoil. And Abraham did what every husband has sometime, at one time in life, has tried to do. He just washed his hand of the matter. Because he said in verse 6, Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Translation. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Happy wife means happy life. So you just do whatever you think's best. He just washes his hand. His hands of the situation. And look what happened. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. The word mistreated there is an interesting word. It literally means to afflict and to treat harshly. It's the same word used in chapter 15, verse 13. Go back to chapter 15, verse 13. In chapter 15, verse 13, in a different context, the same word is used. God is telling Abram about what would happen one day in the future to Abram's descendants. And God says in verse 13, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, speaking of Egypt, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. It's the same word there that's used uh, in chapter 15, verse 13, where Sarai mistreated Hagar. It means that she abused her, probably physically and verbally. She abused her. In fact, the abuse was so bad, when you look in chapter 15, verse uh, I'm sorry, verse um, 6, chapter 15, verse 6, the abuse was so bad when Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Some of you probably know what that kind of abuse feels like, don't you? Verbal abuse, maybe even physical abuse, maybe even sexual abuse. The headlines are there every day, aren't they? The headlines never seem to end. A wife beaten by a, a husband who plays for the NFL. A teenager sexually assaulted by someone famous. An elderly man abused by so-called caregivers. You see, some endure suffering at the hands of others, and some experience suffering because of bad choices. But no matter how you get there, suffering is a part of life. And for some of you, it's a part of your life, perhaps. It's likely that some of you know the physical and the emotional pain that Hagar experienced. So verse 7 is a very important verse to the story and maybe to your story as well. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Again, look at the word, an important word, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. 
The word found there means a deliberate effort was made to locate her. The word found means that the angel of the Lord was not just happening to come by and say, oh, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Sarah did not want Hagar. Abraham wasn't sure what to do with her. But she mattered to God. And the Lord found her in the desert. This is the first mention, by the way. This is the very first mention in Scripture of the angel of the Lord. The very first time you see it in Scripture is here in this text. It it is generally believed that this was a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, let that sink into into your brain for a moment. The very first time that we have in Scripture, that we have a reference to Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth was this pre-incarnation visit of Jesus. You say, well, why do you think that was Jesus? Well, look in verse 10. The angel promised in verse 10 to do something that only God could do. Verse 10 it says, I'm getting the right chapter. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. That's something only God could do. I will increase your descendants that it would be too numerous to count. Look in verse 13. Look at what Hagar called this angel in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. You're God. Go back to verse 10 again. I will, he says. The angel added, I will. So He didn't say God will. The angel said, I will. So increase your numbers. This was a pre-incarnation visit of Jesus to the earth. Now don't miss this. The first reference in the Bible to the Lord coming to the earth to help somebody was not to Abraham. The first reference was to help a rejected slave girl named Hagar. Why would God bother to find a runaway slave Why would God bother to allow Jesus to leave heaven for a temporary assignment to go to the desert to find a runaway slave girl that didn't matter to anybody because she mattered to God? See, your name doesn't have to be Abraham for you to be important to God. Regardless of race or place or status in life, you matter to your heavenly Father. Hagar was about to learn that lesson as she talked to the Lord and as the Lord talked to her. Pick up the story in verse 8. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. Notice she did not answer the question where you're going. She didn't know where she was going. And it really didn't matter where she was going. She was just trying to run away. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. And you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. 
So she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God met with Hagar that day and told her three things. He said, number one, go back to Sarai and submit to her. What tremendous faith that would have had. You would have had there to go back. Number two, he said, you will have a son and you're to call him Ishmael. And the name Ishmael means God hears. It would be a constant reminder to Sarai or or to Hagar. God hears. In fact, we don't have time to flesh this out, but if you want to fast forward the story a few chapters later, but several years later for Hagar, she runs from her family again. She runs from Sarai and Abram again. And she runs out into the desert again. And she leaves her son under a bush to die. And she goes by herself to weep. And God comes to her a second time and says, I have heard the cry of your son. So he says, name him Ishmael. God hears. Third thing that he said is this. Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man who will live in hostility toward all of his brothers around him. And you may or may not know this, that Ishmael is the founder of the Arab people. And the hostility in the Middle East today was born right there. Now, verse 13, though, is the key verse to the entire story. So verse 13, we pick up the story where she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, named, gave a name to God. You are the God who sees me. She ran away from Sarai, but she ran into God in the desert. You are the God who sees me. As I was meditating on that verse this week, I kept quoting it in my mind. And just throughout the week, and if I was frustrated, if I was experiencing some kind of problem, if, if I was concerned about something, I kept saying out loud to myself, You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. And, and whatever I was dealing with, I would remind myself, You are the God who sees me. And then, one, one day throughout this week, don't remember when, but one day this week, it hit me what Hagar was really saying. Hagar did not say, you are the God who sees. Hagar said, you are the God who sees me. The me that nobody wanted. The me that got tossed aside and abused. The me that nobody loved. The me that endured pain and frustration. You are the God who sees me. Folks, I want to tell you something. Genesis uh, Genesis 16 is the only place in the Bible where the name El Roi appears. You are the God who sees me is the Hebrew name El Roi. She named God that day. She gave God a name. You are El Roe. You are the God who sees me. The only place it's found in the Bible. But the point of the name is not just that God sees what happens in our world. The point is that God sees us in our place of quiet desperation. And He comes to reach out to us and to help us. You are the God who sees me. Now, if you've never been rejected or cast aside, if you've never thought that no one knows and no one cares, if you've never been used or abused, 
If you've never felt unloved, if you've never been hurt or suffered alone, then the name, the God who sees me, may not mean as much to you as it does to some others, or as it did to Hagar. But, if you have experienced those things, if you know what it feels like to be alone, if you know what it feels like to be abused, if you know what it feels like to have all kinds of problems and feel like you've got no future, then you will be encouraged by El Roi. Because the God who sees you is the God who always sees, He always knows, and He always meets the needs of those who are suffering. Hagar was amazed at the thought. You're not just God. And you're not Abraham's God. And you're not Sarai's God. You are the God who sees me. The abandoned, forgotten, runaway, Egyptian slave girl lost in the desert. You are the God who sees me. So if you feel like you don't have a whole lot to offer God, you need to remember the story of Hagar. And may I remind you of something, a very important lesson. It's not what we have to offer God that matters, it's what He has to offer us that matters. God sees where we are, God sees what we're going through, and God meets us in our desert times. The hardest times of your life, it helps to know that God sees what you're going through. In your desert times, it helps to know that God sees what you're going through. Look in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. I'll show you the same concept. Exodus chapter 3. This is the story of Moses in the burning bush. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. And he sent Moses to do something about the problem. You know, folks, it's awful easy to wonder, where is God? Does He know? And does He care? Where is God in the midst of my problem? Where is God in my desert time? Where is God when I feel so alone and unwanted? Where is God? And does He care? Some of you know about my brother Larry who is in the hospital. He's at Duke University. He's been there a little over three weeks now. Uh, Larry, while I was in Uganda, had open heart surgery. Uh, He's got a very diseased heart. And his only hope, he only had a few few months to live probably unless they were able to, he was not a candidate for a heart transplant. His only other option was to go to Duke University and they were going to install an, an LVAT pump into his heart that basically would keep his, his heart working. And so they installed the pump, open heart surgery, installed the pump, and now he's got this little controller that he has to wear 24-7 for the rest of his life. That's got two batteries and a controller that controls the pump in his heart, keeps it going. Surgery went great. His recovery from the surgery was going very well, except that he began to lose a lot of blood, and they could not figure out where it was coming from. The loss of blood was not due to his surgery. 
Larry had been losing blood over the years, but it was just a little bit, and they never could quite figure out. They tried to do tests, and never could quite figure out why ever so often it'd have to get blood or iron treatments. But here's what was happening. His heart was so weak and it was pumping so little that he wasn't losing a lot of blood. But once he got the pump in his heart and his heart really started pumping the way a, a heart should, then he was pumping out a lot of blood. He was losing a lot of blood. He lost uh, six units of blood over three days. He was averaging losing two units of blood per day. They gave him six units of blood. Now, at Duke University, this, this, this is not Podunk Hospital. At Duke University, they did three different tests trying to discover where he was losing blood, and they could not find where he was losing blood. He continued to get weaker and weaker and weaker. He, he had other problems that I won't go into, but, but the result of losing blood, getting sick because his stomach was filling up with blood, and getting sick, he couldn't eat, he, he just continued to, got, to get weaker and we, extremely, extremely weak. It was taking a toll on him physically and emotionally. His, his hope was they would find out where, they could, where the blood was going. And finally, after the third test, the doctor came in. It was just Larry and his wife in the room. The doctor came in and said, we, we, didn't, we, we couldn't find where the blood's coming from. And we don't know where it's coming from. And we don't know what else to do. And they lost it. They just lost it. And Larry told me, I visited him on Friday. I went to Duke to see him. And Larry told me, he said, Keith, it's the deepest, darkest pit I have ever been in. He said, it literally felt like Satan was pulling me into this deep, dark pit. And it didn't happen just that one day. There's, there's a long process, and I, I don't have time to tell you everything. But things just continually got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Physically worse and worse and worse. Weaker, 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 weaker. Until he got to that point where the doctor said, we've got nothing else we know that we can do. And when he got that news, he was just devastated. He said, Keith, it's the deepest, darkest pit. He said, I didn't even know there was a place that dark. I didn't know there was a place that bad. Now, my brother is a pastor, in case you don't know. He said people were quoting Scripture to me, and I didn't want to hear it. They were telling me they were praying for me. I didn't want to hear it. He said, I was in such a deep, dark place. I just wanted to die. After the doctor said, we don't know what else we can do, eventually, his wife Pat went back to the apartment and Larry was there in the hospital room by himself. And he said, Keith, in the middle of the night, God came in that room with me. Now, I don't mean he saw anything and he didn't hear any audible voices. But he said, God came in that room that night. And God said to me, this is where faith begins. And he said he, he started praying to God when he hadn't prayed to God for several days. He started quoting Scripture and quoting Scripture and then he started praising God. And he spent the rest of the night just quoting Scripture and praying and praising God. And he said, Keith, he healed me that night. He stopped the bleeding. The doctors came in the next morning 
And when they came in, Larry was sitting up. And before Larry ever said a word to them, the doctors looked at him, stopped in the doorway and said, what in the world happened to you? And the doctors started getting other doctors to come in and look at him. Got other nurses to come in and look at him. Oh, look at this guy. Look at the dude. What happened to you? And Larry said, God healed me last night. That was about a week ago. A little over a week ago. About a, it's been about ten, nine or ten days ago when that happened. And he hasn't had another drop of blood that he has had to be given to him. And his body has started producing blood now. Now he's still got a long way to go and he's still got, if you want to pray for him, pray that the fluid will now leave his body. He's got excess fluid. His legs are literally bursting open. Fluid gathering in his body. So that's where you can pray. But I, I texted him this morning. He said everything is good except for the fluid. That's where they can pray. But you know what my brother found? In his desert time, in his desert time, he found out that God is El Roy. You are the God who sees me. And his presence made the difference. He said, I don't know how much longer I've got to live. God may take me tomorrow or he may give me several more years. He said, I might have other physical problems, but I know this. God healed me of my bleeding. You are the God who sees me. And I just wonder in your life if perhaps you too are in a desert time. Here's what you need to know. In your most painful trial, it may be the time when you have your most personal experience with God. In your most painful trial, that may be the time you have your most personal experience with God. Maybe you've had a spouse who walked away on you. Perhaps you've had one or more family members who've turned against you. Or maybe, like Hagar, you're a single mom and you're lonely and you're hurting. Or maybe you're in a desert time and your future looks bleak and uncertain. But in your most painful trial, you may have your most personal encounter with God. Remind yourself this week, speak the words out loud like Hagar did. Speak them to God like Hagar did. You are the God who sees me. You don't have any trouble, you don't have any pain, you don't have any heartache that he does not know about. I want to close today by asking you to turn to Lamentations over to the right. Lamentations chapter 3. If you find Jeremiah, go one more book to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 21. And 22. Lamentations 3, 21 and 22. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. 
great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah, the man who wrote those words, had every reason to give up. He was going through a desert time of his own. But he understood one thing that perhaps you need to understand today. God is always greater than your suffering. God is always greater than your pain. And I wish I could promise you that God's going to answer every problem that you have. I can't give you that promise. But I can give you this promise. He will be El Roy for you. The God who sees you. The God who meets you in your desert time. I'm going to ask you to pray with me for a moment. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Let me speak to you before we leave and have the invitation. Some of you perhaps need to come with every head bow, every eye closed. Some of you need to come today to this altar probably and talk to El Roi. You need to come to this altar and declare what Hagar did. You are the God who sees me. Maybe in your desert time you've been struggling and you've been perhaps even angry. Perhaps your heart has grown bitter. And God has reminded you today that you are loved. You are not forgotten. You are His child. And today, just in a statement of faith, maybe declare again your belief. You are the God who sees me. You know everything in my life. You know every problem I have. You know every need that I have. I declare by faith, my trust is in you. You are the God who sees me. And His presence will make the difference. Others are here today and you need to understand that Hagar was an Egyptian slave. She did not grow up knowing God. She grew up in a culture, in a country where there were many so-called gods. Many little g-gods in Egypt. And she grew up in that culture where there were gods everywhere. But none of those so-called gods could help her. In her desert experience, in the middle of her suffering, she met the one true God. And so can you. In the middle of your desert experience, in the middle of your suffering, one of the things that may come out of that is that you meet the one true God. His name is Jesus. He met Hagar in the desert and He can meet you here today. Would you be willing to surrender your life to Him? Would you be willing to give your heart to Him? Would you be willing to ask Him to be your Lord and Savior? To turn from your sins and believe that He died on the cross for you? He can be your Lord and your Savior today. And I I pray that if you don't know Him personally, that you'll meet Him right here today. Father, I thank You for Your presence and for Your Word that reminds us that even in the hardest times of life, You meet us where we are. May You meet with us now in this invitation. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.